I'd say when we got back onto campus, it was so good to see everyone in 3D um, because it was it was just a different dimension. And that does add another connection that I think everyone was missing. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Staff Lounge, a place to unwind, reflect, and connect with the faculty at Humber College in Toronto, Canada. In each episode, we'll be having casual chats, interviews, and tips from our teaching and learning support team. I'm your host, Sharantha Bedegay. I'm a saxophonist, composer, and faculty in the Bachelor of Music program. On March 25th and 26th, 2022, Humber College will host our annual part-time teachers conference. This virtual conference is for part-time faculty in Ontario colleges, and there is no cost to attend this event. Should be a really, really great opportunity to learn, and the theme of this year's conference is perspectives, what we've learned. On that note, I had a great conversation with two of our contract faculty members, Carrie Ann Scott and Dr. Betsy Moss. Carrie Ann, Betsy, and I talked about some of the issues concerning part-time faculty and their teaching practice, and some of the lessons that they have learned in the past two years of teaching through a pandemic. Thank you so much to both for being here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. In the run-up to the Part-Time Teachers Conference, uh, the theme of this year's conference is Perspectives, What We've Learned. And I'm sure that we've all learned a number of interesting and surprising and unexpected lessons <laughs> from the past two years, especially. Um, but I'm wondering if both of you can share some takeaways that you've learned kind of pedagogically about what the experience of the last two years has been like for you, particularly as someone who wears a lot of hats and uh, is a contract faculty and, and does a number of different things professionally. Betsy, do you want to start? Uh, I have a lot of thoughts about this, and I feel like every day I'm learning something new. Um, I think the biggest piece that I've made the most effort to work on is um, because of the remote nature of our work, those of us who are part-time contract faculty can sometimes feel a little isolated or disconnected. And I've made efforts to reach out to other faculty, to participate in as many sort of uh, online events as possible because I recognize that this is something that I feel and I know my students are also feeling. So when I'm working on the same things that they're working on in terms of trying to make new connections with new people, I can share that experience with them. So that's probably one of the first things that I would emphasize is just my own uh, focus on my own, my own needing to have social connection and contact with people, which is just, just like what my students are feeling. I, I, I totally agree. And, and I think making the connections with as many um, faculty and, and providing opportunities for live interactions with students um, was really something that I focused on for the last few semesters um, because that makes the connection that we're missing from being on campus. We, we're already missing from the college perspective, so many hands-on learning opportunities that we try and recreate through whatever digital means we can. But that connection piece, especially those of us who are in the social sciences, that, that connection piece is so important for our students when they're going out to practice. So trying to model that through this two-dimensional realm, right? I, I'd say when we got back onto campus, it was so good to see everyone in 3D um, because it was, it was just a different dimension and that does add another connection that I think everyone was missing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I'd add to that as well that it's, I see not just that my students need that social connection in order to learn the skills necessary for their careers, but in a deeper, more personal way that I hear my students um, expressing anxiety, concern, uh, social concerns around social justice issues, around ecology and environmental issues, around their own sort of economic instability. And I think, gosh, like the number one thing that I can do is to teach them to be aware of the environment that they're in, to be accurately understand the world that they're in so that the anxiety that they're feeling is based on facts, not sort of blown up, exaggerated fears. Um, and also that they are beginning to also look at solutions to problems and participating in solutions to problems, participating in creative responses to the challenges that we all face, every generation has faced. So I guess I kind of see that connection, that social connection is also being a very personal piece that's going to go with them beyond uh, their careers and into every aspect of their lives beyond my classroom. Um, I continually get messages every day from students who are wondering about late assignments and points being deducted and afraid that they've missed the cutoff for something. Um, and that fear is palpable and not something that I want to contribute to. It doesn't create a space for learning, for, for risk-taking, for openness. It creates a kind of very transactional relationship where I feel like students can sometimes reduce learning down to a game where if they check off the boxes, they get out of the class. And that's not the transformative learning that I want to be a part of. So I guess at the end of the day, that's why that social piece, that, that emotional social connection is so important to me. And I think you've, you've made a really good point that that that's one thing that I noticed is a difference between um, the before times and the more recent times. Um, I'm seeing a lot more of what do I have to do to get this done from the students and it's the checking of the boxes, as you say, um, when we were posting online lectures and and doing all the wonderful technology things that we all had to jump in and do um, it was okay do I really need to watch this lecture? And I would see from the stats on my um, uh, learning modules that not everyone was watching the lectures, right? And then, so th that has transitioned into um, when they come onto campus or do I need to come onto campus? I didn't watch the lectures. Do I really need to do this? Um, but the, but I'm finding a lot that the that social piece and how we get back into it has reinforced with the students maybe a little bit of of that joy of learning again, and that it was easy to ignore things when we were flat screening, but now that we are we're back together, we've got that little spark that we can reignite, and I think that that comes from from that as you say that genuine social interaction, which is what I hope as we as instructors is what we do so well. Mm -hmm. Goodness, there, well, there's so many great points to touch on there, but I'll, I'll just pick a few to start. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind that I, I want to make sure I ask about is managing one's time, especially for contract faculty such as yourselves who are juggling, juggling, juggling these different uh, teaching situations or just, you know, being being in different places at different days of the week, it is so, as so many are. 
um, all of the uh, all of the points that you're making are wonderful and pedagogical and heartfelt and, and thinking and thoughtful about the student's perspective and meeting their needs and being accommodating and being uh, being understanding of their their circumstances but there's also also your circumstances and the boundaries on your time as well so tell me about that how does that how does that uh, work in your world when you're trying to wrestle with these different things I can't it's, do it all. Yeah, it, <laughs> but it, it has been a, a struggle because um, understanding all the anxiety and the, that the stress that the students are under as well. And I might get an email at seven or eight o'clock at night. And I know that that student probably didn't just whip off an email. They thought about that and they've already built up the anxiety. And what's going to happen if I don't, if they don't have a response for 12 hours, how is that going to impact their, um, their performance going forward and how they look at the assignment and how they, they eventually take a deep breath and are able to continue on. And so sometimes I was just, in, instead of turning off my computer or my email at six or seven, whatever hour is the magic hour that I no longer work, um, sometimes it would just be as simple as, I've got your email. I can't respond in depth right now, but I'm going to respond to you before 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. And I would just have an actual copy and paste that I could just throw into an email to talk to students and say, yes, I recognize that you're struggling with this. Or if it was a simple, a simple one line answer that yes, you're on the right track, I could give that to them hmm. without, you know, did it take into my family time a little bit maybe? But I think that that connection that I had with the students allowed them to realize that as they were isolated, as we, Bessie was saying, we're isolated as well. But in that moment, we could make a connection and say, yeah, you're on the right track. I hear you. And it's okay. And so, yes, my family definitely took a, took a bit of a hit on this one. And they've noticed a difference since I've been back on campus. I'm, I'm on campus three days a week right now. And the family time is back. Um, because we are able to answer those questions in person that had been those constant emails whenever the students sat down to do their work, whereas now we have designated class times and I have office hours on campus. So, so I think that going forward, we're going to get that balance back. So there's a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, I'm not back on campus and I'm continuing to teach at Humber online through the summer as well. So the things that I've learned will continue to be the things that I keep in place. And I mean, there's some technical solutions that I've had to this problem as well. Um, I use three different internet browsers for the three different institutions that I work at mm -hmm. because uh, needing to manage the sort of the two-factor identification, switching between contexts, that can actually take, you know, it can interrupt flow. And it may not take a lot of time, but it takes that sort of mental flow time that gets interrupted and it's harder to then jump on a Teams meeting or answer, um, go into the learning management system and, and take care of something. So for me, three different browsers has mostly solved that problem. Not completely, but mostly. Um, another thing is I've thought about where my energy is going in my teaching. And for sure, the first part of the pandemic, I put a ton of energy into content creation where my lectures were, uh, my video lectures were complex and, and uh, had a lot of 
effects to really emphasize what I want them to learn with, you know, behaviors and captions and annotations. And um, I used Camtasia to the, to sort of the best that I could. Um, and I still do use Camtasia, but I've uh, switched the emphasis on my original content development, which I'm still doing, but less of, so that I have more time for a connection with students, which means in some cases I may be, uh, instead of a, a long lecture, my video lecture might be short, and it might be a series of comparisons instead of in-depth analyses. And I may then include other readings or videos from other sources to kind of complement what I'm not able to produce. And that means hours of time available to be uh, available for meetings, for, content, for doing email, for giving feedback on the assignments that I've given. So um, I think recognizing how much labor good online teaching includes for that content creation piece and not holding myself to some kind of impossible <laughs> standard that we can't do that in one semester for all of our classes. Um, no one was expecting that and yet I still put that on myself. So um, that was a learning. But I think you make a really good point that, that really we are in emergency remote learning. It might not be an emergency anymore, but it is remote learning, which is very different than the different than the distance education pedagogy. And creating actual distance education classes takes exactly what you're talking about. It's the time and the effort and the resources and the skills management and the video editing and all of that wonderful pedagogy that, that instructional designers and, and I have a master of educational technology degree. I know how wonderful it is, but that's not where we were. And yes, a lot of us put that expectation on ourselves that we were going to make something that looked like a TVO documentary and it was going to be our wonderful uh, online lecture. And, we, and you're right, we spent a lot of time doing that. Um, but that was, never, that was never going to be sufficient in terms of making a direct connection between our online classes that we were supposed to be delivering and the circumstance in which we had to deliver. And so I love that you gave yourself a little bit of grace that you no longer have to be the production editor over at a major network uh, production because that's that's not our wheelhouse, right? That's that's not my my expertise is in child development and in human connections and in all of these other wonderful things. And and yes, I have some pretty fabulous online lectures, but they in no way compare to the dynamics of what we deliver when we get back face to face. That's my experience anyway. This semester, a course that I'm teaching um, at OCAD, you know, as part-time faculty, we do wear these other hats. So I'll talk about a course that I'm teaching that I designed specifically to include um, I guess some people would call it self-care, but the assignment is every week students have to walk for an hour and keep a log. And the course is about the history of graphic design in the 20th century. They're doing analyses of lots of maps, maps especially of Ontario, maps of Toronto. Not all of my students are anywhere here in Canada. Some of them are in China or elsewhere. So, um, but they're walking, they're logging their walks and their assignments are to the finalist, one of their final assignments is to make a map of their walking experiences. 
we've met up a couple of times for walking together, just to walk and talk. And uh, getting out of the basement, for me, <laughs> um, getting outside, um, being outside, getting students to go outside, uh, helping them think about their experience uh, away from the screen and the keyboard, um, that that's also a site where learning can happen, where what they've been learning can sink in more deeply. Sometimes walking for 10 or 15 minutes is what they need to do to be able to de-stress and uh, sort of come down from that peak of anxiety to be able to come back and do an assignment or uh, a test or something. So in this course so far, the, the jury's still out. I haven't finished really going through all of the assessments, so all of the work that they're doing, but the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive that knowing that they're getting uh, supported for this learning that is about using their bodies, about going outside. Some of them can go walking together. That has been a really positive way of using something that is pandemic safe, contextual, local. They can think about and look for examples of different kinds of design that we're talking about in class. It's been a really positive experience. And I did similar uh, exercises in terms of child development and curriculum and, and sending people part of their assignment for um, one class this semester was to go out to a playground and to play. I mean, that was, I teach play, I teach how to play. And so it's wonderful to, to be able to go out and do that. And we did um, in September, I guess it'd be October, we were back on campus at the University of Guelph Humber. And we actually spent a, an entire class out in the Arboretum. Um, and so that was wonderful walking through the trails and, and sitting in the in the outdoor learning spaces and doing that sort of wonderful thing, bringing that connection and that self-care back and saying, it's okay. It's okay to take, you know, half an hour, give yourself that grace to go outside and get your body ready for learning. Absolutely. Yeah, I love all these points. I mean, I think there are so many intersections as I'm listening uh, with the work that I'm doing as a music faculty, unquestionably, the idea of social interaction, of, of thinking about our world critically, uh, of, of understanding, you know, facts and, and understanding uh, the history of, of the, the context of the music that we're playing. And of course, the concept of play and understanding how, how to play is exactly what we're doing. And all of these things are really important. I, I just love the points about connecting with nature and connecting with the land, because I will tell you that as a student uh, 20 years ago at Humber College in the Lakeshore campus, I did not take nearly full advantage of the fact that Lake Ontario was steps away from me. And I always tell my students, please make a point to do that. But I love the idea of leading them in that practice and kind of making it a part of the pedagogy uh, that you have. And, and also too, you know, I think if, especially for those who are dialing in remotely, it kind of brings everybody into a, a similar space because everybody's got nature somewhere uh, in, in in access to them, no matter where they are. So I love those points. Um, as we close out, I have one final question to both of you, kind of beyond the, the topics that we've been talking about. Are there any other pedagogical techniques, lessons, ideas, something in the, in the last season, apart from what you mentioned, that you are really interested in carrying forward and exploring further in your own practices? One of the things I really love to do when I'm in person is I love to do debates and four corner debates and that kind of thing. And, and how does that translate when you suddenly go into online learning? It was really difficult. I found a program that I use called Kialo, K-I-A-L-O dot E-D-U. 
and it allows for online debates. And so what I was able to do was recreate that debate platform, but what it taught me was that there are students that rarely participate in a debate where, you know, you can picture that debate classroom where there are the loud voices and the people talking over each other. And for some that's culturally inappropriate. The wonderful thing about using that electronic platform was everyone's voice was equally loud and everyone's voice was valued and they had a chance, even if they had to think about what they wanted to say, they didn't have to be the quick thinker, especially for, as you say, our English language learners, it was wonderful. And I think I'm going to carry that forward, whether we are on campus or online. I think that was really a, a fantastic tool that I discovered that, that kept the interaction going uh, asynchronously, it was even wonderful, um, but kept the spirit of the building on each other's ideas. Uh, same sort of thing with a Miro board. I, we're going to be using those going forward, going forward. There's so, so much collaboration. And a couple of my classes have created boards that they want to keep going in future semesters because the ideas and the collaboration are so uh, helpful to their practice going forward. Those are great examples. I love using whiteboarding for all kinds of projects. Um, I also do a lot of uh, like simultaneous, like open a Google Slides document and we could collaborate on Google Slides and then the team will present that slide. And one thing that's uh, really underscored the sort of needing to include everyone in sort of group work when they go off into team uh, small rooms or breakout rooms is I often make sure I, I assign roles so that there are four roles and everyone has to play a role in that small group collaboration. Sometimes there may be two or three people on a role, but there's at least one empire. There's at least one, the umpire is the one who makes sure everyone is kind of <laughs> sticking to the question or answering the problem. Um, someone's the communicator, so they're the ones who are making sure that the ideas actually get recorded in a way that can be shared with the rest of the group. Um, and then the, some of the other roles depend on what the actual nature of the discussion would be. So pedagogically, I think um, making sh it, it sounds kind of simple to make sure that our expectations are clearly articulated, but sometimes I feel like it's easy to give an assignment where I ask students to go solve a problem in a breakout room and I know how to do that, but they don't necessarily know how to do that. And so showing them this is one way we can, this is how we can structure our conversation and going forward. Sometimes I think that really helps them in other contexts as well. Um, learning to trust their own ability to do, answer a question, that's, that's really been uh, an interesting problem to think about, especially you know, it's, it's easy for students to kind of get together and share answers for a quiz on a Discord channel. And that's been really heartbreaking when I've seen and heard about that. And I have a colleague who's been just struggling with that right now. And I think, you know, this is coming from a place of fear where students are just trying again to answer, answer the questions and have this really transactional approach to teaching. So whatever I can do to dismantle that, those feelings, that fear, that anxiety, that's for me going forward. I'm, I'm not, I'm not at that place where I'm back to teaching in person. And I don't think that going back to teaching in person for me is going to mean that the, those kinds of larger things about 
the anxiety around climate change and social justice and um, public health, I think we're always going to have that. We're not going to go back. We're going forward. And that's going to come with us no matter what modality we're in teaching. So um, I guess my teaching is going to always be reflective of that. Great points. Well, thank you very much both for uh, these very thoughtful comments. Uh, it's obvious to me how much you care about um, the, the learning of our, our students and how much time and effort that requires. And, and obviously it, it, uh, it, it pays off, I'm sure, for the students in, in your courses. And um, I just want to thank you for this. It's given me a lot of food for thought, and I'm sure it will for our listeners too. So thanks to you both. Thank you. Let's talk again. Thanks for this opportunity. Well, folks, after two seasons of the Staff Lounge, I am sad to report that this podcast is coming to an end. I'm heading on sabbatical in the 2022-23 academic year, and this podcast is going to end at the end of the school year in approximately May or June, once we finished our last few episodes. And I just want to take an opportunity to thank all the great people who are involved with all things related to this podcast. First of all, Rania Khan, who has been overseeing this mission for the last many months and helping guide the ship along the way, giving us lots of really thoughtful advice and guidance on how to proceed and who to get in touch with and what questions to ask. Uh, she's been an invaluable resource kind of at the helm of this whole thing. I wanted to thank Elizabeth Springgate for coming up with the wonderful graphics and design for the logo of the Staff Lounge, as well as for communicating all the things that we're doing in our innovative learning newsletters that come out quite frequently. She's the person responsible for a lot of that. Thank you to Hamza Ibrahimi, who has been uploading stuff to our website and making sure that it's up to date along the way for much of the last two years. And um, lastly, I want to thank the person who has probably been working the hardest behind the scenes in all this time we've been doing the podcast, and that is Fiona Tudor-Price, who has been managing all the editing and production for each episode of the podcast from the very beginning. There's so much that she needs to do behind the scenes in order to make this seamless and feel like it flows really well, and she does a fantastic job every single time, and it's unseen work. It's unheard work from, from the back end, and I know that uh, she spends a lot of time and effort and cares greatly about making this a success. So I want to thank Fiona especially for all the hard work that she has put into this. Also, a quick shout out to some of the other people who have been involved with the podcast in the past, Mark Enat and Heidi Marsh, who were two of the people who came up with the idea for the podcast. I think Heidi was the person who had the basic premise of it from the beginning and was sort of the person who came up with the original vision for it, which we still adhere to, and thanks to Heidi. Uh, so shout out to both of them. Also to Laura McKinnis, who helped with uh, some of the guidance along the way while we were in sort of phase two of the last year and a half of doing this. And also to Sorsha Hurd, uh, who is away on maternity leave at the moment. And she has been instrumental uh, as uh, a person helping to organize all the different aspects of the scheduling for these episodes. So I hope I didn't forget anybody. I, it's been a really, really great learning experience 
connecting with people all across this college, and I've learned a tremendous amount. If you want to get in touch with me in the next year, you can find me through my website, www.sharanthabetagay.com or betagaymusic.com if you want to find out what I'm doing, where I'm performing in town. Uh, And uh, there's lots of stuff that I'm looking forward to in this next year. I'm going to be heading to Sri Lanka for a short amount of time to be able to connect with my musical heritage and learn more about that. And that's going to be part of my big sabbatical project. So lots to report on when I come back and, and lots of fun that I'm looking forward to in the next year. So thanks to all of you for the last year and a half of these episodes that we've been putting out for all the positive feedback that you've given to us and all the encouragement, all the great episode ideas. And thank you, of course, to all the wonderful guests that we've had on this podcast in the last two seasons. I can't thank you enough for being open and giving of your time and just providing all kinds of really great food for thought for faculty to take into their teaching practice moving forward. I have a mountain of ideas that I'm hoping to implement in future years as I think about all the great things that have been shared with me through these episodes. So thanks again, everybody. And we'll see you next time.